Welcome to the Two Minute Medicine Podcast, summarizing the latest medical studies curated and written by practicing physicians. For our full suite of daily medical study summaries and updates written by practicing doctors, please visit our website at twominutemedicine.com to start reading new daily content right now for free. On this podcast, twice a month, we cover the latest in healthcare news and research evidence. We are your hosts, Deepti and Andrew. On today's episode, we'll start off by discussing our articles of the week. In the second half of the episode, we will look at health issues that have arisen in popular media. Please head to our website at 2minutemedicine.com to sign up for 2 Minute Medicine Plus. Now, for just $4.99 a month, this single premium offering affords subscribers ad-free reading and all of 2 Minute Medicine's content. This includes over 100 pieces of new, original monthly content, including our daily medical reports, visual abstracts, the classics in medicine series, wellness checks, and more. Our first article of the week comes from the New England Journal of Medicine and is entitled Randomized Trial of Vaccines for Zaire Ebola Virus Disease. Ebola virus disease outbreaks have high morbidity and mortality and have recently recurred in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Guinea. Two vaccine strategies to prevent Ebola virus disease have received World Health Organization pre-qualification status and were used during the most recent Ebola outbreaks. Strategies include the recombinant vesicular stomatitis virus-based vaccine, or RVSV, and the combination of an adenovirus type 26 vectored vaccine, followed by a booster dose of a modified vaccinia and caravirus strain, or MVA. However, there is a gap in knowledge as to understanding the safety of these vaccines, as well as the rapidity and durability of antibody responses to them. Two randomized placebo-controlled trials were conducted, with one involving adults and one involving children. Three vaccine regimens were tested. The first involved adenovirus followed by MVA 56 days later, also known as the adeno-MVA group. The second involved RVSV, followed by placebo 56 days later, also known as the RVSV group. And the third involved RVSV, followed by a second RVSV booster 56 days later, also known as the RVSV booster group. Adults who are 18 years of age or older and children 1 to 17 years of age, all without a history of Ebola and who were not pregnant or breastfeeding, were eligible for the study. The primary outcome measured was antibody response at 12 months defined as having both a 12-month antibody concentration of at least 200 enzyme-linked immunosorbonase units per milliliter, and an increase from baseline in antibody concentration by at least a factor of 4. Based on the primary analysis, the incidence of injection site reactions and symptoms was higher in the week after receipt of the primary and secondary or booster vaccinations than after receipt of a placebo, but not at later time points. At month 12, a total of 41% of adults and 78% of children had a response in the ANO-MVA group, 76% and 87% respectively had a response in the RVSV group, 81% and 93% had a response respectively in the RVSV booster group, and only 3% and 4% respectively had a response in the placebo control group. Overall, the study demonstrates that no safety concerns were identified and all three vaccine regimens demonstrated an immune response against Ebola. In summary, the study found that immune responses were elicited within 14 days of injection for these vaccine regimens and were maintained for 12 months, with no safety concerns identified. 
The study was limited by being unable to assess protection from disease or determining a correlate of protection. Nevertheless, these studies' findings are significant as they demonstrate that vaccines for the prevention of Ebola virus disease are efficacious in eliciting an immune response and have no reportable safety concerns. Our second article of the week comes from JAMA Pediatrics and is entitled Myopericarditis After COVID-19 mRNA Vaccination Among Adolescents and Young Adults, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. COVID mRNA vaccine-associated myopericarditis is a rare but serious adverse event that has been reported in young adults and adolescents. In adults, vaccine-related myocarditis typically resolves with minimal complications and preservation of cardiac function. However, clinical outcomes of COVID vaccine-associated myopericarditis have not been well studied in adolescents and young adults. This systematic review and meta-analysis investigated early outcomes associated with myopericarditis after COVID-19 vaccination in children and young adolescents aged 12 to 20 years old. This systematic review and meta-analysis also included all observational studies from inception to August 25, 2022, describing myopericarditis after COVID-19 vaccination. 1,406 potential articles were identified, with 23 articles included in the systematic review and 12 studies included in a meta-analysis. The incidence rate of COVID vaccine-associated myopericarditis was higher after the second dose of the vaccine compared to the first, with 74.4% of total events occurring after the second dose. Common symptoms included chest pain, fever, and a headache. The most common markers of myopericarditis included elevated troponin in 84.5% of patients and ST segment elevation or depression in 53% of patients. Most patients had preserved LV systolic function. Overall, 92.6% of patients required hospitalization, with 23.2% requiring ICU admission. Despite ICU admissions, only 1.3% of patients required inotropic support, with no deaths or mechanical ventilation, and had an average length of stay of 2.8 days. In summary, myopericarditis occurred more frequently after the second dose of COVID vaccine and was almost exclusively seen in males. Nearly all patients with myopericarditis were hospitalized with an average length of stay of 2.8 days. About 15% of patients with myopericarditis had decreased left ventricular systolic function, although roughly 1% had severe LV dysfunction. In addition, vaccine-associated myopericarditis was not associated with death or the use of mechanical respiratory support. The most significant limitation of this study was the lack of long-term follow-up information regarding complications from vaccine-associated myopericarditis. In general, this study suggested that the vaccine-associated myopericarditis is rare and that short-term outcomes are favorable. However, larger studies with longer follow-up periods are necessary to further inform our understanding of this condition. Now for the scan, the pop culture-focused part of our podcast bringing a medical eye to popular events. We'll start off by talking about the genetics of Alzheimer's disease. The story. Chris Hemsworth recently took to Instagram to inform fans that he will be taking a break from his career following the results of a genetic test. The actor, best known for his role as Thor in the Marvel Universe, 
underwent genetic testing for his new docuseries Limitless and discovered that he has a genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's disease. Although the results of the genetic test stunned the actor, he has said it did not come as complete shock, as he has a family history of Alzheimer's disease. The recent news is shedding light on Alzheimer's disease and the importance of understanding the risks and implications of genetic testing. So what is Alzheimer's disease? Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, constituting 40-45% to of dementia cases. Alzheimer's disease is characterized by worsening brain function over time, with symptoms including memory loss, personality changes, poor judgment, and more. Alzheimer's is not uncommon, with more than 6 million Americans living with the disease. The incidence of Alzheimer's disease increases with age, but for those who develop symptoms before age 65, they are considered to have early-onset Alzheimer's. Although Alzheimer's disease cannot be cured, there are medications that can help manage symptoms. Cholinesterase inhibitors inhibit the breakdown of acetylcholine, an important neurotransmitter implicated in the disease, and help improve symptoms. Newer treatments are also being developed, and in 2021, the FDA approved the use of aducanumab for the treatment of mild Alzheimer's disease. The drug works by binding to amyloid B tangles in the brain, which are thought to be responsible for the disease pathology. In two recent randomized phase 3 clinical trials, one study found a statistically significant increase in cognition and function in those treated with high-dose aducanumab compared to placebo, but the other study did not. Further research will need to determine if newer medications can be more effective in treating disease symptoms. What's the deal with this genetic mutation? The results of Chris Hemsworth's genetic test indicated that he has two copies of a gene called APOE4. APOE4 is the strongest genetic predictor for Alzheimer's, and although scientists are not completely certain of the role the gene plays in the disease pathology, recent studies have indicated that it likely plays a role in altering lipid metabolism in the brain. It's important to note that carrying the APOE4 gene does not automatically result in the development of Alzheimer's disease. In fact, about a quarter of the population carries one copy of the gene, and in the 2-3% of the population that carries two copies, not everyone goes on to develop the disease. In fact, many experts are taking the Chris Hemsworth news as an opportunity to educate people of the polygenic nature of the disease and to remind the public that certain genetic markers are not determinants of the Alzheimer's, but rather just risk factors. In fact, many specialists advise against testing for genetic variants like APOE4 because the results and implications of those results can be very hard to determine. What next? The recent news shared by Chris Hemsworth is shedding light on the disease and some of the struggles that are faced by those living with dementia. Although there is no telling what the future holds for someone who is a known carrier of APOE4, staying active, eating healthy, and reducing alcohol consumption are all some of the documented ways to reduce your risk of developing dementia. The World Cup was not short of epic moments. From the heroic underdog stories to triumphant superstars, there was no shortage of entertainment. Unfortunately, the excitement was also matched with tragedy when the passing of reporter Grant Wall, an American soccer journalist, was announced. A recent autopsy determined that the sudden cause of death in the otherwise healthy 49-year-old was an aortic aneurysm. The tragedy is now bringing attention to the condition, often known as the silent killer. 
The aorta is the largest artery in the body, which is responsible for carrying oxygenated blood from your heart to the rest of your tissues. An aortic aneurysm is when the walls of the aorta become weakened, resulting in an outbulging of the aorta, which worsens over time. Aortic aneurysms can occur anywhere along the length of the aorta. However, they are most common in the part of the aorta that transverses through the abdomen. Aortic aneurysms develop slowly over time, usually at a rate of 1 to 2 millimeters per year, and the size of the aneurysm is correlated with the risk of complications. There are two potential risks associated with aneurysms, dissection and rupture. An aortic dissection occurs when the aneurysm tears part of the arterial lining, causing a dissection of the wall of the aorta. An aortic rupture, which is what occurred in Grant Wall, is when the aneurysm bursts, allowing blood to spill out of the aorta. When the rupture occurs, it's fatal 80% of the time. Aortic aneurysms most commonly occur in men, and factors such as old age, smoking, high blood pressure, and certain genetic conditions can increase your risk of developing one. In fact, due to the role that smoking plays in aneurysm development, the U.S. Preventative Task Force recommends aortic aneurysm screenings for males with a prior smoking history who are between the ages of 65 and 75. Although aortic aneurysms are known as the silent killer, eating healthy, managing your blood pressure, quitting smoking, and knowing the warning signs of a rupture can help keep you safe. Over the past few weeks, snowstorms erupted all over North America, bringing along snow, cold temperatures, and many canceled holiday plans. Along with Arctic-like temperatures, holiday blizzards are also accompanied by a slew of health risks. Frostbite and hypothermia are some of the most obvious risks when the temperature falls. Frostbite occurs when the temperature drops below 28 degrees Fahrenheit, and with colder temperatures, frostbite occurs more quickly. When this happens, vessels in your extremities constrict to conserve heat, resulting in tissue damage due to the combination of decreased blood flow and cold temperatures. Although frostbite is often treatable and has a good prognosis, Many people have long-term effects of frostbite, such as neuropathic pain and skeletal damage. Hypothermia is different than frostbite because rather than specific tissues being affected as in frostbite, hypothermia is the result of a low core body temperature, below 35 degrees Celsius. Symptoms of hypothermia can include shivering, confusion, weak pulse, and more. When these symptoms occur, medical attention is necessary. While anyone who is exposed to cold temperatures for an extended period of time can develop hypothermia, some populations such as elderly individuals, infants, and those who are under the influence of alcohol or drugs are more vulnerable. Although cold weather injuries are largely preventable, in a study looking at these injuries in the U.S. over a 10-year period, there were over 15,000 eMERGE visits attributable to hypothermia and other cold-related injuries. Additionally, more of these visits required transfer to critical care than other ED visits. In other words, cold weather injuries are very resource-intensive yet preventable hospital admissions. The reason for this is because although dressing appropriately for the weather and avoiding prolonged exposure to the cold can help prevent frostbite and hypothermia, this is not possible for everyone, especially those who are unhoused. In fact, one study found that deaths due to hypothermia are 13 times higher in unhoused individuals compared to the general population. The winter storms 
have thus brought attention to the issue of opening more warming centers and making more resources available for unhoused individuals, especially during severe weather conditions. Findings from a recent study suggest an important step towards developing a vaccine against HIV. Human deficiency virus HIV destroys T cells, a type of immune cell in the body, impairing the immune system and often leading to acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or AIDS. An estimated 38 million people worldwide are currently living with HIV, and HIV AIDS has been responsible for over 40 million deaths since its discovery. While many efforts have been made to curb the spread of HIV, many believe that the ending epidemic will require the development of a vaccine. A recent phase one study found that an experimental HIV vaccine could induce broadly neutralizing antibodies in human subjects. Broadly neutralizing antibodies can target many strains of HIV at once, circumventing the problem of the constantly changing virus. In the study, 97% of participants produced broadly neutralizing antibodies after vaccine administration, and the vaccine also demonstrated a favorable safety profile. Up until this point, efforts to induce these super antibodies have been futile, so the results of the study represent a huge step forward with respect to HIV vaccine development. Although a vaccine against HIV is still far away, new technologies are showing hopeful advancements towards the United Nations goal of ending the AIDS epidemic. We'd like to acknowledge the following members of our team for their contributions to this week's episode. Ashley Jackson, David Zhang, Kira Liblick, Vincent So, and Alex Gipsman. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Two Minute Medicine Podcast. New episodes come out every other week and all of our content has been curated and written by practicing physicians. Please head to our website at twominutemedicine.com to learn more and to access all of our content, including medical study summaries, visual abstracts, excerpts from our classics book series, which is available on Amazon, and The Scan, which is our medical newsletter. Thank you so much once again. To make sure that you don't miss any of our content, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter or Instagram at 2minmed.